Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're in the book of Acts, and I'm going to jump straight into it in case you think, oh, you're forgetting uh, church-wide prayer, which has become a tradition here. No, I'm not. We're going to read the first portion of our passage today, which will lead straight into our time of prayer this morning. Does that sound good? Okay, great. So we're going to be covering Acts chapter 4 this morning. If you want to go there in your Bibles, that would be great. Uh, And last week, if you missed Pastor Stephan's sermon last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. One, because it was just really good. And two, because it's going to uh, build, I'm building off of that for this week. So just a very quick recap. Pastor Stephan took us through Acts chapter 3. That's where Peter preached the gospel of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, right? And it starts started with them entering into the temple, and there was a lame man there begging for money at the gate called Beautiful. He said, you got some money for me, and they didn't give him money, but they gave him something that you can't put a price on. They gave him healing to his body, right? And this lame man who had been lame for his whole life uh, stood up, and he leapt for joy. And I just love the point that Pastor Stephan made about how we actually, there's so many layers within the Bible. There's just depths of wisdom and knowledge and beauty within the pages of Scripture if we're just willing to dig in. And he mentioned how this was actually a prophetic marker from Isaiah uh, Isaiah chapter 35, right? And how the lame will leap for joy. And it really acted as a declaration to those who were witnessing this healing that the age of the risen Messiah had come. That is really good news That's really exciting, and Jesus is the risen Savior of the world. And following that healing, a large crowd of people gathered at the temple, and Peter stepped up to bat, and he delivered an epic sermon that really gripped the hearts of those that were listening. And everybody was just enthralled by what he was saying. Well, that is except for a small group of people who were there that day listening to that sermon, who were not so pleased with what Peter had to say. And that's exactly where we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 4. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you Acts chapter 4, starting verse 1, and I'm going to go to verse 13. We'll launch into prayer from there and then conclude our sermon, all right? Acts chapter 4. Again, this is right on the heels of Peter preaching this sermon. It's actually still underway. It says, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now that's up from 3,000 after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power and whose name did you do this? Now, just pause on that for a second. They're not so much asking because they literally didn't know whose name that they were preaching in. It's really more like, you know when you're in like, you're in a verbal argument and the, and the trash talk is getting heated? I'm sure no one in here knows what that's like. I don't know why I ha- somehow have experience in this, but you know when the trash talk is getting heated and someone hits you with a, what did you say? 
Excuse me, what did you say? It's not so much that they didn't catch what you said, it was pretty apparent, and that's the thing that poked them so, but they're asking you and more giving you an opportunity, are you sure you want to repeat that? And so Peter and John are being given a second chance. Whose name are you teaching in? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucify, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no, other, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven and earth given to mankind by which we must be saved. Amen? Now that's some good preaching. That's some really good preaching. That's probably the best part of my sermon all day. I'll just reading what Peter had to say. We're going to conclude with this verse, though. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Man, I love that. Don't you just love a verse like that? That verse is for each and every single one of us in this room and those that are hearing this message. Especially that last line, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And I sincerely hope that that is the desire of each and every disciple in this room today. That when people interact with you, they would catch something in you that would indicate this person has been with Jesus. Would that not just be a great lifelong prayer request? Oh Lord, I pray that when people encounter me, they see you. Would that not just be the greatest answer to prayer of all? So here's my main point this morning. I, I believe that this verse here is, gonna, is really gonna speak to us. There's a calling to the power of ordinary, to the power of ordinary. I believe that God has set a challenge before us. First and foremost, I'm speaking to my church, to Selfine Church. I believe God has set a calling before us to be the kind of ordinary that stands out in a crowd. That is our call. The kind of ordinary that directs our lives towards Jesus and points other people to him. So I'm going to talk to you today. Our message title will be The Power of Ordinary. If you're a note taker, you can write that title down. So we're going to go from there into church-wide prayer. It would only be fitting that we pray for the persecuted church because right here in Acts chapter 4, that's what we're seeing unfold. The apostles are facing persecution. The heat is being turned up a little bit, and they're being called before the Sanhedrin and being asked by what name, and it's persecution that they're facing. So I'm just going to have this slide pop up here that's going to direct us in prayer now. Oh, so close. There it is. We're going to pray for the persecuted church. Four simple prayer points. Pray that God would strengthen Christians that are living in persecuted countries today because that is happening right now. That is a real reality within the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is one. So that means that if they're experiencing persecution, 
we're called to endure that with them and stand with them in prayer. Amen? I put up there, uh, you can't really see that. Oh, that color choice was uh, my bad. That says www.opendoors.org if you want to head there. That's a helpful place if you're looking to grow in prayer for the persecuted church. It's a really helpful resource for you. Number two, pray for protection for families, churches, and pastors facing persecution. Number three, pray that God would give believers across the globe courage to stand for Jesus, for fresh fillings of the Holy Spirit so that we might bear witness for Jesus. And I love that our prayer point, this is one of our church-wide prayer requests, is that we would not waste the opportunity to share the gospel. Amen? And then lastly, prayer for the Western church to get ready. Not just a church institution or pastors on staff at a church, but the church, the body of believers for individuals to get ready and already begin to grow in boldness in witnessing for Jesus. So can we do that together? I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and we're just going to pray all together in unison. If you're new here at this church, that's totally good. You can pray quietly along in your spirit. That's fine. But we like to start our messages off in prayer together as a body. So let's pray uh, towards that aim in three, two, one. Let's pray. Oh, God, I just... I just ask, Father, that you would protect those that are following you across the world right now as they're facing persecution. God, I pray that you would keep them, that you would protect them, Father, that you would give them the strength to endure. Father, as the intensity increases, Father, I pray that so too would their experience of you. We know, Jesus, that there is no place that you are barred from. There are no walls that can keep you out from the very pits of this earth, God, in the lowest places, I know that you dwell there and you long to strengthen those who call on your name. So God, would you do that and would you give us boldness, God, as we stand for you too? Jesus, we choose to live for you. We're gonna live for you in this world and we're gonna be bold in doing so. Would that be true of us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, you may be seated. Thank you for praying with me. Okay. Far too much to get into in so little time, but that's okay. We're going to get into it. We're going to start by working our way through this passage. We're going to start with another fulfilled promise. That's what we're going to draw our attention to first. Another fulfilled promise. As we start working our way through this passage, I want you to actually see the faithfulness of God and observe that our God is not only a promise maker, but he's also a promise keeper. That's right. Our God is a promise keeper. 
And so, we have seen many promises get fulfilled in this book of Acts so far. I mean, Pastor Stephan just last week was unpacking that about how Peter's message wasn't new. He was unpacking these promises in what he referred to as the continued testament, just meaning that this is one big grand story that God is weaving together and he is answering and fulfilling these promises that he makes to his people. And so, anyone here ever experienced the faithfulness of God? Anybody here ever had a promise from God and he was faithful in delivering that? Yes, I have too. That's amazing, right? And I'm sure there are some in here that have received a promise from God that they're waiting on still to come, but take heart and know that our God is a promise keeper. I mean, for me, just very practically, when I think of God being a promise keeper, and especially when I'm prepping a sermon and that's what's on my mind, I think of how every single time the Lord is faithful in providing something for me to share from. I mean, I don't always promise that what I share is amazing, and I definitely don't claim that it is, uh, you know, like this is the Lord speaking, but humbly I go to him and I ask God, would you give me a message that would build up the church and would also just start in my heart, God, and he's been so faithful. And I remember there have been times where it's been Saturday morning, and all I have is a couple words written out on a Word document, and I dislike them very much. And I tend to be a dramatic person. You can ask my wife about this, and she'll attest that it's true. Especially when I'm preaching a sermon, it's like a little bit of an emotional roller coaster. And sometimes I turn to chips. I feel like there are worse things to turn to, okay? Um, uh, but I remember one time in particular, it's Saturday morning. I go to bed Friday night, and I'm just saying, Lord, I've, I got nothing. And, and I just sense, he says to me, as I lay on my bed, he says, I will provide. I go, okay, great. So I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to wake up bright and early Saturday morning, and I'm just going to have this amazing prep time. I wake up Saturday morning. I go to the table. And I kind of like hit my head on my laptop for like a couple hours straight. That's at least what it felt like. So now it's Saturday morning. I got to take my son to hockey. Prep time is now behind me. And I'm going, Lord, I've got to, like, I've got to preach in less than 24 hours. And I've got, I've got nothing. So I go to hockey. I get my son laced up. I get him out there on the ice. I head upstairs uh, to the area where the parents can observe the hockey game. And I've got my notes in my hand. And I'll show you what those notes look like. They look like this. So these are the notes that I had and I just wasn't feeling comfortable with it. I sat down and I just wrote right here, if you can see that, I said, Saturday morning dot, dot, dot. God, please help me. <laughs> to which I felt Jesus respond to me and highlighted here in the red, it just says, follow the text, smiley face. And to anyone else that's like, what is that gonna help you at all? Isn't that kind of obvious? But I'm telling you, to me, that was a familiar whisper of someone that I've learned to trust. That was Jesus. And what proceeded to happen, I can't describe it any other way, was a miracle. I took this piece of paper, I flipped it over onto the black, uh, bank, blank side of the back page, and in less than five minutes, I had a full sermon prepped in pen. Now, I did go and put that into writing in case you're like, is that what you're looking at when you're preaching? It doesn't look like this, okay, I promise you, but that's the faithfulness of God. Our God is a promise maker. Our God is a promise keeper. And so, do you have a story of God's faithfulness? Has he met you in some way, strengthened you when you didn't think it was possible to go on? 
Second question, have you shared that story with somebody lately? Because actually, part of the Christian life, we're called to encourage other people. We're called to share these stories not so that we can be the hero, but actually the opposite, so that we can show our desperate need for Jesus and how our God is a promise keeper. And when we go to him in prayer, when we humble ourselves and say, show me the way, he is faithful and he will answer and he will lead us. Amen? So share your stories. If God has been faithful to you, share them. But back to our passage for today, Acts 4. You might be wondering, how on earth can Acts chapter 4 show God's faithfulness? I mean, what kind of promise is God keeping? Peter and John are on trial after all. That doesn't sound like a very uh, encouraging place to be, and that's exactly my point. Exactly my point. I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 10. This is when Jesus was sending out the disciples to do ministry. In Matthew chapter 10, this is Peter and John would have been listening to this teaching personally. Jesus said this, I am sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and, uh, and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you will say or how to say it. At that time, it will be given uh, you what to say, for it will not be you speaking but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And so what we see happening in Acts chapter 4 is nothing short of a fulfilled promise. This is God fulfilling a promise. God is faithful. And I encourage you to go back and read all of Matthew chapter 10. I think that would be a really great place. Mark that down on your notes to go back and read it because it's actually amazing what Jesus follows up with saying. He said, the student will be like the teacher. What is the thing that the council says to Peter and John? They noted that these men must have been with Jesus because they were kind of like him. This is fulfilled promise. You see, Matthew 24, Pastor Ray did an end times sermon very recently, and there's promises in there that we maybe don't, you know, know what to do with at times. Jesus promised that we would be handed over to be persecuted and to be put to death. Jesus said, the heavens and the earth may pass away, but my words shall never pass away. And it can be tempting at times to ignore or to shy away from the harder promises that God makes. But I want you to know this. Who are we to pick and choose? We love those nice promises in Scripture. Say those promises for a hope and a future, those promises that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, or that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Those are great promises. We want to cling to those promises, but it's not one or the other. Rather, we must hold on to all of God's promises because all of God's promises will be fulfilled for his word will not return void. It means what Jesus says will happen will happen. And Peter and John, as difficult as this trial, literally they were on trial, as difficult as that would have been, and the future persecution that they were going to face as we embark on this journey of reading through Acts together, it also must have been a source of strength to them. You see, if Jesus is faithful in accurately predicting this event to happen and those that were yet to come, he must also be faithful in predicting that the ultimate end for the life of a disciple in Christ is not death, but life everlasting. 
because God is a promise keeper. Over and over and over again, the Lord is proving that what he says will come to pass shall come to pass. And church family, you know what's the most encouraging thing to me? As I prep, this was the point that I wrote down that I just stopped and, and meditated on for a while. We know the end of the story. Do you know how hopeful that is, that we know the end of the story? If you are a disciple of Jesus and you take his word seriously, come what may, we know the end of the story, that our God is going to come back to rescue us. There isn't any darkness that will overcome us. Death will not have the final word because Jesus is going to have the final word and he will come back for his bride. Is that not just amazing? It's so good. So here's the key truth. While this promise from Matthew 10 was partially fulfilled in Acts, it's also true for us today. As in, we too will face trials. Times have already come and will yet come and are, are indeed already upon us when we will face trials. But Jesus is a promise keeper and we know how the story ends. So, that is point number one. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Number two, Jesus forged the pathway for faithfulness. It's very important as we read stories like this that we remember this detail, that it was first Jesus who forged the pathway ahead of us. Before we go any further, we must pause and look at the life of Jesus, because in the days that are coming, whatever they may bring, we have to become experts at learning to fix our eyes on Jesus. That has to become an instinct, an automatic reaction that we look to Jesus and follow in the path that he walked. Because when we face trials in life, big or small, I found it to be true that it is so easy to fix your eyes on the problems. Isn't that true? When you face something difficult in life, and it doesn't have to be to the, you know, the epic scale of standing before a scary council of men and you know, being given this threat that they're going to persecute you. Whatever the trial might be in your life, it is so easy to fix our eyes on the problem. And that is a sure path to despair. And church family, I, I just feel like I would, it would not be right if I, if I didn't just say, for me personally, these last few months have been difficult for me. I'm just gonna say that. Everything's okay, like I'm still happy, still, you know, love Jesus and I'm excited to follow him, but it's been a difficult season that I've been in. And I know this firsthand. When you go through a time where you feel discouraged, when you feel tired, when you feel weary, when you're facing pressures that feel like they're on all sides, to make those things the only thing that you focus on. And when you do that, you take your eyes off of Jesus and that's never good and it only leads to despair. We're called to perseverance and we're called to follow Jesus even unto death. That much is abundantly clear throughout the Bible. I'm gonna give you just one example here from Philippians. This is, a lot of people call the book of Philippians the book of joy. So here's some joy for you this morning. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. I'm gonna encourage you to go back and read that passage in its, 
in its context in Philippians chapter 1. I think, I think it's just beautiful, and it goes along with this message very well, but I didn't have time to include all of that. Jesus has called us to this, and he prophesied difficult days were ahead for his faithful followers. However, in case you're getting the wrong idea about Jesus and his character, first of all, you must know that Jesus is good. He does not delight in our pain and in our suffering, as some have misunderstood or even some have you know, claimed that you know, you've got to suffer really well and put yourself through difficult things so that you can earn the love of God. No, no, that's not Jesus' character at all. Jesus is good. He's a loving Father, and He does not delight in our pain. So that's why we must understand the why, which comes along with the what. And in this case, the what is a call to persevere and to suffer alongside of Jesus, to be faithful in suffering. So we have to understand the why. The why is so that we can bear witness to the world about our love for him and actually about his love for us. Have you ever seen a Christian that goes through suffering and in the midst of the trial, they don't become jaded and bitter, but instead they just become soft and actually empathetic towards other people. How on earth, we wonder, how on earth, despite what you're going through, how can you remain joyful and hopeful? How can you remain so considerate of other people? I'll tell you how. Because they're suffering alongside of Jesus and they're experiencing his fierce love for them, and it guards their hearts. So we bear witness to the world. That means we tell the world, we show the world Jesus, and God actually wants to save the world. Did you know that? He's, he's pretty committed to this plan of saving the world. He's proven time and time again that there's no lengths he wouldn't go. He desires that, all, that none should perish, but all would come to, to know him. And so... Because he longs for people. He's not slow, but he's patient in his return. And we're called to wait and endure. And when we suffer under trial, we bear witness to who Jesus is. And our suffering is not in vain. Jesus will not waste any of it. The blood of those martyrs that give their lives unto death for Jesus, not a single drop will be wasted. And they won't get to the end of the life and go, oh man, I missed out or that cost me too much. No, when they see eternity and when they're with Jesus, they'll realize that it was all worth it. That really in the end, we're all undeserving of the grace that we've been given. And so, secondly though, not only is Jesus good, he also didn't call us to do something that he didn't first do himself. He wasn't first willing to do himself. And Jesus called us to be faithful in trials. But furthermore, Jesus forged the pathway of faithfulness in the ultimate trial in the cross. And this is the gospel. I mean, this is core to our faith. That we are gathered here today as brothers and sisters in Christ with the immense hope for future glory, knowing that we will be with Jesus forever in eternity because God is good, God is a promise keeper, and that because Jesus forged the way for us to follow him. He has prepared a place for us, and we are going to be with him. He endured the cross. So I'm going to do just a very little comparison here so that we can see we're talking about Jesus modeled the way. Jesus paved or forged the path of faithfulness. We're just going to quickly take a peek 
at Jesus forging that path in his trial in Luke chapter 22. Now, what I love about this, if you didn't know, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. That one's pretty easy because his name is right at the top. But Luke also wrote the Gospel of Acts. So what I've loved as we've been going through the book of Acts is I'll often flip back and forth between the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts because it's the same author and many times he's connecting pieces or there's a lot of comparisons that we can make. So I'm going to be looking at Luke chapter 22, but displayed on the screen right here is going to be Acts chapter 4. And I just want you guys to take note of a few similarities. So Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 54. This is speaking of Jesus. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, and when there was... Uh, and uh, Sorry, Peter followed at a distance... The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. And at daybreak, the council of elders and the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. So, all I'm trying to do is just show you, quite literally, Jesus forged the way. He modeled to his disciples how to be faithful under trial. And when we're reading this, you can just note, basically it's the same group. This is a very short time span between these two stories happening. This is the same group that Jesus stood before that now Peter and John are standing before. Do you have any idea how intimidating that would be? You can read between the lines here what this group of powerful men are saying. Do you realize who we are? We're the one who, ones who killed your, your rabbi. We're the ones who got him nailed to a tree. Excuse me, what name are you teaching in? Imagine yourself in that position. Now, Peter and John are aware of something, realize something that these men don't, that Jesus isn't dead, that they had no power over him to begin with. The only power that these men had were that which was given to them by God. And Jesus is alive. But just imagine standing before that group of men. Peter adds in his gospel, just speaking of the call to suffer for Jesus. Because you're going, man, that just seems really harsh. Is that really in the Bible? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to show you this. Peter says this, If you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. It cannot get any more clear than that. This is Peter writing these words. God gave us an example. Jesus gave us an example. He went before us. He forged a pathway for faithfulness. And that's why if we're going to understand how to suffer well, one of my favorite verses is in Hebrews chapter 12. I've said this verse in many sermons that I've preached, but I just love it. And if we're going to learn how to suffer well, we do well by thinking, even memorizing, I'd suggest, a verse like this. We are exhorted to fixing our eyes on Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we can see that part of how we endure under trial 
regardless of what that trial is, that hardship is, is we fix our eyes on Jesus. We acknowledge that the power to follow Jesus and be faithful in our trial comes because he went first and our faith is in the one who forged the way for us. Here's the key truth. Jesus modeled faithfulness in hardship, persecution, trial, and even death. And therefore, because he was faithful in his trial, we can be faithful in ours, but not by our own strength, but through his. In doing this, we bear witness to Jesus. And I love how one author put it. Dalton Thomas said it this way, his cross makes sense of ours, and our cross makes much of his. So when we go through pain and hardship and those questions arise in our soul, why God? It's his cross that makes sense of the one that we are to carry. But when a Christian faithfully bears their cross, we make much of his. And we bear witness to this world that there is a power greater than darkness within us. So, how are we all doing? You sticking with me? Okay. Let's go to number three. Peter's transformation was a process. Here's a curious thought. Where was Peter when Jesus was under trial? Where exactly was that guy? I mean, he talks about having, you know, a model to follow, so uh, Peter must have been right there with Jesus and been faithful, his right-hand man right beside him the whole time, right? Well, that's certainly what Peter would have liked us to believe. See, the night before Jesus died, he spent his last time Uh, his remaining hours with his friends having a meal, and then they prayed together, but it was at that meal that Peter spoke up, which he had a tendency to do. You know, he was the guy who loved to make a good, bold claim, and he said, you know, Jesus predicted that this very night I'm going to be handed over and put to death, and all of you are going to desert me. And we should be paying attention that when Jesus says something, we shouldn't argue that it's going to come true. And so Peter, though, doesn't, you know, doesn't get that, and he stands up and says, Lord, never will I betray you. And Jesus says, uh, yeah, you will. And Peter goes, no, no, seriously, I'm your guy. He's like, we're, we're tight, Jesus, I'm your guy. Even if everyone else betrays you, I will not. And what's interesting is the other disciples agreed. It's like, do you not realize that he's kind of insulting you? He's like, I don't know about these losers, but I'm going to follow you, Lord. But they all agree. But that very night, they all disown him. And you can see here, this is Peter during Jesus' trial in Luke 22. A servant girl saw him, that is Peter, seated there in the firelight. So she looked closely at him and said, hey, this man was, was with him. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't even know him. I don't even know him. Peter's faith completely failed in Jesus' trial, and he didn't stay faithful to God at all. Before Jesus faced the cross, sorry, uh, it's important to note at this moment the difference between following Jesus on our own strength as compared to following Jesus by his strength and by the power of the Holy Spirit. You you just simply got to compare Luke 22 to Acts 4, and it's obvious to see that something has happened to this guy. Something has transformed him, a deep inner work. He is not the same guy that he was in Luke chapter 22. In Acts chapter 4, Peter is bold. Peter here in that past verse, that servant girl was saying, I think you've been with him, which is the same thing that the religious leaders said. This guy's been with Jesus, except for in Luke 22, Peter goes, I don't even know him. But in Acts chapter 4, 
He boldly teaches in Jesus' name. There's no shame there in associating himself with Jesus, even if it costs him his life. Peter's been transformed, and I want to emphasize that there's been a process. Because remember, these are ordinary men, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. So let's look at that, ver- uh, that phrase a little bit. Unschooled and ordinary men. This was certainly intended to insult these men, implying that they should not be leaders amongst the people, let alone spiritual leaders within the temple. Far be it from them because they're unschooled, they're ordinary men. Really, what's at the heart of this observation is this. It's clear that whatever is coming out of these men is not of themselves, but it's something else entirely. We've already seen what comes out of Peter when he's working on his own strength, and this certainly is not that. These are ordinary men, which is what makes this response that Peter and John is giving extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's not ordinary because they're ordinary. This shouldn't be the way that an ordinary person responds. I want to give a quick side note. What this passage is not saying is that there's something wrong with going to school with further education, or just to put it broadly, there's nothing wrong with being intellectual. In fact, the intellectual is included in the gospel of the kingdom and is needed in the gospel of the kingdom. We can please God and bring Him much glory by pursuing Him with our minds, by studying His Word, by going to school, and by thoughtfully engaging in conversation in the academic world. So there's nothing wrong with schooling here. As some might take this verse and immaturely go, oh, see, like it's, it's wrong to go to school. It's wrong to go to Bible school. It's wrong to go to university. That's not what this verse is implying at all. I'm going to focus in on the word ordinary. I believe that there is tremendous power in ordinary things. I believe that it is the ordinary, quote-unquote, that steers the direction of our lives and it actually shapes history, ordinary things. You see, we often read stories like this. Let's take the book of Acts as a prime example, and we like to focus on those extraordinary details. It's nearly impossible to not do this because the stories are, well, they're extraordinary. They're supposed to catch our attention because they're amazing. However, we are in error if we assume that those instances produce themselves in a sort of haphazard way. I think we're in error then. Take, for example, these past two sermons given by Peter here in the book of Acts and, of course, his response to the Sanhedrin. We read it and we're completely in awe of the Holy Spirit and we're even a little bit in awe of Peter going, how on earth can this be so? How did he get so wise? How did he get so bold? How did he get so clever in, you know, linking passages of Scripture together in a way that could concisely deliver the gospel with such dramatic effect. I just want you to consider the sheer number of scriptures that Peter was able to quote as an example, okay? Think about that. Pastor Stephen really unpacked that last week, the amount of scriptures that as he's preaching, he is referencing. And the question is, was that all just given to Peter on the spot? You know, I think we often view it like that, that that Peter was just kind of this ordinary guy until one day his hair got set on fire and then he became the great apostle Peter, preacher of the early church. And if you miss the reference, you're like, his hair was on fire? The Pentecost, okay. You know, it's extraordinary things. Yeah, so 
We wonder, like, did it just happen by the snap of a finger that suddenly he went from this ordinary guy to this extraordinary guy? Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that God is not able to supernaturally give people power in an instant if he chooses, but what I am saying is I think it is far more common that God will transform people by a process. A process. So, for example, in the life of Peter, consider that as a Jewish boy, Peter would have been taught the scriptures and spent time studying them, including memorizing them and reciting them. He was very familiar with the, with the promises, with the Word of God. And then he spent three years apprenticing under no less than Jesus Christ himself. He heard the sermons firsthand. Think about it. You read the sermons of Jesus, just amazing, the teachings of Jesus. Peter was there hearing it in person, and he received hands-on education and instruction from Jesus. And he would have had time to ask questions and make observations about the way that Jesus lived. And furthermore, he would have adopted a lifestyle, not just a set of teachings, a lifestyle that Jesus was his rabbi and he apprenticed under him. So the teacher did so the student would do. Seeing the process yet? And then if that were not enough, which it wasn't, he spent 40 days with Jesus after his resurrection, where it says that in Luke 24, it says that Jesus unlocked for them the scriptures. Jesus spent time unlocking the scriptures for them and then filled them with the Holy Spirit and preached to them the gospel of the kingdom in Acts chapter 1. And finally... Oh, sorry, I got ahead of myself there. He taught them the gospel of the kingdom in Acts chapter 1, and then finally in Acts chapter 2, he filled the disciples with the Holy Spirit and enabled them to live out the mission which Jesus had given them. So here's my, here's the key truth. It was ultimately the Holy Spirit in Peter which enabled him to be faithful to God in this trial. That is absolutely 100%. It was the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit working within him. But furthermore, it was also a process that transformed him into that kind of person. And that process, that process included Peter failing, Peter being reinstated. Go and read John 21, where Jesus finds him after this trial where he epically fell and denied Jesus. Jesus came and met him and reinstated him, got him back up on his feet and said, keep following me. And then Jesus filled him. That is what happened. It was a process. You know, I've heard it said this way. First you make your decision, and then your decision makes you. First you make your decision, and then your decision makes you. Or for the, you know, in the case of this sermon, first you choose your process, and then your process is going to form you. It's going to shape you. We're all being shaped by something. The question is, what process is currently forming you, and is it helping you, or is it hurting you in becoming more like Jesus? Is it bringing you to that place when you stand on trial, when you face a trial, when you step up to bat? Is it shaping you into the type of person that is going to respond like this? Is it going to help you to become more like Jesus? Now, I'm going to tie back to that in a moment, what, did that, what that process looks like. But we're going to go to our last point. Oh, look at that. Scads of time. You guys feeling good so far? Awesome. 
Here's where we're going to end. I want to talk to you about the power of ordinary. Because remember, at the start of this message, that's where we began, talking about God's call to ordinary people to embrace an ordinary life that would help us to become more like Jesus and point other people towards Jesus. And you know, as I was praying this morning, I I just got this picture. Uh, We were up here praying uh, as we normally do before the service, and God just gave me this this image in my head of someone sitting in the chairs in the pew, like, like I would so often be doing, sitting in a chair like that. And sometimes, you know, we hear these messages over and over again, and we read these stories over and over and over again about men and women being faithful to God and how God is able to use them. But in this picture, I just saw this person kind of going like, looking around going, I wonder who, I wonder who he's talking about. Like, I wonder who's that lucky individual that God is going to use. And they're kind of looking around going, and suddenly they go, no, surely not, not me. This message isn't for me. I'm not going to be like Peter. I'm not going to be like John. Like, those were apostles. But church, this message is for the ordinary. Are you an ordinary person? I am. This message is for you. This message is for me that there is power in the ordinary, in saying yes to Jesus as an ordinary disciple and living for him. Now, I want to clarify what I mean by that, and that's how we're going to end. We've looked at the promises of God. We've looked at the pathway forged by Jesus. We've looked at the process of transformation. Oh, do you see that? Four P words, because the last one is, we're going to look at the power of the Holy Spirit. Boom. That is creativity right there at its finest. No, it's, I just do that so that we can remember. If it helps, if it aids you in remembering, you can think of those four words, promises, pathways, process, and power. Because if we're talking about something that is going to shape us, I think that this is going to shape us. We're going to look at the power available to us by the Holy Spirit. So again, Acts 13. Read it one more time. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. So do you want courage in your life? Do you want to be a courageous and bold follower of Jesus? Do you want people to, when they observe your life, to say that there's something different about you? Do you want someone to say, man, I can just tell that You've been in that book. Maybe they mean it in a, in a bad way. They're like, you're reading that Bible too much because you're acting a little bit crazy like that Jesus. That would be a compliment to me, actually. Do you want people to be able to say that of your life, that when they look at you, they see him? Well, how do we get there? Then focus on the word ordinary. Many people make it their aim to be extraordinary. Yet, what I've found is that it's those who, have, those who have the greatest impact in the world are the people that regard themselves as just ordinary. There's a familiar word at the root of ordinary. Did you know that? Do you know what it is? It's order. The word ordinary is rooted in that word order. For something to be ordinary, it implies that it is predictable in its order of things or events. That's what makes something ordinary. 
For example, I wake up, I head downstairs, and I fix myself a tall cup of coffee. That is an ordinary thing for me to do because I do it every single day. Don't try to convict me on that because I don't want to go there. I'm not ready yet, okay? But you've heard the term order of affairs. Somebody, uh, something becomes ordinary to us when it becomes a part of our usual order of affairs, right? It's just a part of our habit, part of our routine. So my question to you is, what are your ordinary practices? Because those are the things that are going to shape you. I think a lot of us, we get ahead of ourselves and we look to the finish line. We put ourselves in Peter and John's shoes and we go, man, I'm going to put myself into the story and if I were on trial, how would I respond? And that's not altogether a bad question, but I would actually say a better, a more relevant question to start asking are what are your ordinary practices today, and how are they shaping you for that moment when it comes? Because the disciple of Jesus isn't supposed to go and hunt out persecution. Jesus actually told us in Matthew chapter 10, you should try to flee from it. Like, if you can, you should go to the next town. So that's not the point that we're supposed to, you know, force these moments when we're on trial. The point is, though, what you do today, what you call ordinary, is shaping you for that moment. So what are your ordinary practices? What are my ordinary practices? I want you to think about that term religious order. Have you heard that before? Often, you know, talked about from the monastic monk movement, different movements within various religions being called an order. Now, I went to my friend Google for some help here, and Google spit out this great quote that literally I Googled, what is a religious order? And I just loved this first thing that popped up. So I'm going to share it with you. Courtesy of Google, a religious order is a lineage of communities and organizations of people who live in some way set apart from society in accordance with their specific religious devotion, usually characterized by the principles of its founder's religious practice. Boom. Thank you, Google. See, that's why it was called a religious order, because they ordered their lives around these practices and principles so that is the key point. This is it. The ordinary practices and values of the kingdom as outlined throughout Scripture and as seen in the life of Jesus become the ordinary materials by which the Holy Spirit shapes his disciples, allowing them to become vessels in which God desires to fill with his Holy Spirit increasingly and repeatedly. It's these ordinary things that we devote ourselves to. These mundane moments where you go, is this going to make any difference in eternity? Why don't we just bring it to a, like a, a really relevant example? You know, you're facing a trial, and it just seems daunting, and you feel exhausted. And there's a voice in the back of your head that you feel like it's the right thing to do would be to pray. I know the right thing to do would be to pray. I should, I should carve out some time and I should bring these feelings before the Lord, but then it's quickly followed up with a, what's that going to help anyway? I'm too tired to pray. I don't have anything left in me, and so we're, we're battling with this decision. And you go, what's, it, what's the difference going to make anyway if I pray or not? Let me tell you, it's the ordinary things, the things you order your life around that make a world of a difference. And so we must learn as disciples of Jesus to choose 
that deep desire that we have within us that the Holy Spirit gave us, it might not always be our strongest desire, but that deep desire, I'm going to choose to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. When he was under trial, he went into the garden and he prayed. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. When, when life is just throwing me curveballs, I'm going to be a person of the word. Even if when I get open up my Bible, it just doesn't feel super like fireworks, I'm going to choose to get into the word because I want that to shape me. So I want to end with just, this is literally, I, I kind of am a broken record on this, I, I, I understand. This was so easy. I just went to my last sermon, and I took a slide that I put up on my last sermon. I'm going to put it up again, because I talk about this lots. But here is just a, a short list, a little sampling of what these practices could look like. Oh, yes. See, these are ordinary practices of a disciple of Christ. These are ones that we can observe from the life of Jesus and faithful followers of Jesus throughout the ages. So you can take a picture of it. I'm not going to go through every single point, but you know, to highlight a few, knowing God through the word and prayer, that should just become an ordinary practice. Regardless of how we feel in the moment, we go to it. Confession and commitment, the things that we're saying no to, choosing to turn from those desires that we have that Scripture says, that does not lead to life. That leads to death. That is sin. We confess that as sin. We get accountability, and we commit ourselves to saying yes to the things of God. By stillness and rest, by just choosing to slow down, you accept your limitations as a human being. Man, I don't know why I need this newsflash so many times, but newsflash, I cannot be in all places at once. I'm bound to one place at one time. And maybe if FaceTime counts, I can sort of be in two places at once. But I hate FaceTime. It's awkward. Okay? So don't FaceTime me. But slow down and learn to rest. And by rest, I don't mean just do what makes you feel good. It's just serve yourself. I mean, yes, God is good and he wants to give us good things and good gifts and rest is a part of that, but use your rest to just slow down and soak in the beauty of God. The rest of the list is there. You can see it. Read the book of Acts and compare it to this list and see what I'm missing. I'm sure that I'm missing many of them, but they regularly devoted themselves to these ordinary practices and look what happened. We're here 2,000 some years later because a ragtag group of disciples that had completely lost faith and abandoned their master were redeemed, restored, and walked in a newness of life. So I want to end with, oh, book, book recommendation, by the way. If you're interested in kind of unpacking some of those things, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. It's in my top five books of all time that I've read. I love it. Might be a good book for you, but I want to conclude with this how completely ordinary of a person I am, because that's already obvious. I don't, that's not news. I'm a very ordinary person, if you have gotten to know me. Um, yeah, I can be pretty lame at times. Um, I want to just share with you just an example that encouraged me from this past week. Okay, to preface it, I found that there are two ditches when trying to follow Jesus. 
when looking at the lives of these extraordinary men and women, there's these two ditches that you can fall into, right? One is that that could never be me. You read a story like that of Peter and John and you go, that could never be me. And the other ditch is that will obviously be me. I mean, look at my life, look at how good I am. That could, that's obviously gonna be how I respond. And I'd like to suggest that both of those responses are pride. Both of them are pride because the first response, that could never be me, you're minimizing God. Oh, really? Like, you don't think that the Holy Spirit is strong enough that he can work through you? If he's called you to something, he's going to equip you for it. You're actually challenging him on that. It's pride. And the second is pride because we so arrogantly think it's going to be by me. Obviously, my strength, I'm going to be faithful. But then there's this narrow middle path. And that narrow middle path is this. By God's grace, please allow me to be faithful to the very end. No matter what I face, God, and that's the path of humility. It's by God's grace. And, you know, I was in uh, Minneapolis this last week with my family on vacation. It was awesome. Uh, and one of my favorite things to do when I'm on vacation, I don't know why I love hotel lobbies so much. Anybody out there with me? I think that they, like, put some stuff in the air to just make you love your time there. I don't know. But I just love hotel lobbies and spending time with the Lord when I'm on a vacation. And, you know, sometimes my track record is a little up and down depending on what we did the night before. Maybe I choose to sleep. But on our vacation, I set this goal. I would love to spend time with, with Jesus at least the majority of the mornings uh, that we were on vacation because I just I find it so special to meet with him in that place, in, in a hotel lobby like that. And so I'm, I'm spending time with the Lord, and it was just, it was great, but it wasn't like, like I described before, it wasn't fireworks, it wasn't anything crazy. I just had a good prayer time. I surrendered some stuff that I was working through as a parent going, God, I'm sorry that I just am frustrated. I'm a, I'm a frustrated dad, and I'm sorry for that. God, help me to become more like you. And just really wrestling with just my imperfections, and then at the end of my prayer time in my journal, I just, I just sense the Lord saying something to me. All it was is, I, I've got a purpose for you on this trip. So I wrote it down, and I know that it was like, in the moment, I, I interpreted it as like, yes, my purpose is to grow in being like a better father, to loving my kids, to having fun with them, to having a blast with my wife, and all of that, but I felt like there was something when I wrote that down, I've got a purpose for you, and I went, hmm, I don't know what that is, but okay, Lord. So one of the days on our trip, we head to the Mall of America. Anyone ever been? Yeah, they've got this amusement park in the Mall of America, okay? And I've completely forgotten about this word that the Lord gave me because, ooh, lights and cool things, and okay, we're having fun, and it's towards the end of the day, and you want to know how ordinary I am? My biggest wish come true, I said, Ellie, please, I know I'm a grown man, but can I go on the SpongeBob ride once before we go? Please? And she's so gracious, she said, okay, you weirdo, go on the SpongeBob ride. So it's the only one there that does a, a loop-de-loop, -loop, and I'm like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. So my kids go off, and like, they're probably like, okay. So I go to the SpongeBob ride, and I get in line, and next thing I know, a guy stands behind me, and I look, and he's wearing a Raptors jersey. Again, just ordinary guy. I look at him, I'm like, Raptors, that's awesome. Dude, are you from Canada? He's like, no, I'm from Detroit. I'm like, that's even better. I'm from Canada. Like, I basically am a raptor, right? Like, he's like, okay. But I just start chatting with this guy 
in the lineup to go on a SpongeBob ride. And very quickly it became apparent that this was no chance encounter. And in the maybe three minutes we had in line together, I was able to share about Jesus and what he means to me. I was able to share about how Jesus found me at the bottom, rock bottom. How Jesus saved me and put me together and he said, come to me as you are, don't put yourself together. And and this guy had shared with me like, I'm searching for something like that. And we were able to have this amazing conversation, although it was short, and then we went on the ride together and we both screamed like little girls because that's what you do on SpongeBob. <laughs> but at the end, I just said to him, man, I don't think that this was just random. Like, I, I, man, I think we like, were meant to connect and talk. And he said the same. And, and so now we've got each other's contact and I, I hope to, to get to chat with him. He's just such an awesome, lovely guy. And I'd love to just get to talk to him more about that. But here's my point. I hadn't even remembered what Jesus said to me, that he had a purpose for me on that trip. I was just thinking about going on roller coasters and, you know, how are we going to get these four kids out of the mall alive? Like, that's what was on my brain. But again, Jesus is looking for ordinary. And if you're willing to say yes to him, if you're willing to be humble and say, God, use me despite me, not in spite of me. If you're willing to give your yes to Jesus, then I would like to suggest that you are the person who was supposed to receive this message today. That you are the person that Jesus says, let me shape you to become the type of person that I can continuously fill, increasingly fill with my Holy Spirit so that you can partner with Jesus in the call that he has for you in your life. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me, church, and we're going to close in worship. Jesus, we offer this all back to you, God. I think some might be hearing this and maybe feeling the weight of, okay, even I hear what you're saying on the process, so I guess it's on me to make myself that kind of person. No, 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 no. Right there, we need to stop again and go, this process is initiated and sustained and finally carried through by Jesus. All we've got to do is come as we are. Ordinary people that follow an extraordinary God. So Jesus, as we worship you, I pray that you would do what I can't, which is by the power of your spirit, minister to your people. I believe that you want to pour out promises to your people today, that you want to speak words of encouragement and strength to your people today. So as we worship you, Jesus, would you do that in your powerful name we pray.